already a great morning. Uh, it's such an amazing thing to be gathered with the church and to sing like that and to reflect on Christ and to pray and to know that we have a real living God who hears our prayers. I mean, this is amazing to be doing what we're doing. Um, grab your Bible and open up to Mark chapter 9. Uh, this will be the last time that I preach here for about a month. Uh, our family, Durso family, is going on vacation, leaving this Tuesday. And we're excited and uh, excited to go see some family on the East Coast and visit my side for a little bit and Ashley's side for a little bit. Um, be able to spend quality time with the family is, is something we're looking forward to. Uh, although we will always... Uh, lack something when we're away, and that is we, we always miss you guys. You are in our prayers. This is our family out here. And so no matter where we are, we're going to be thinking about you and praying about you. Uh, but what I am thankful for is that as I leave, I am confident that the Lord has provided uh, those who can preach the word and feed the flock, and the church will continue humming as if I'm not even gone. And uh, that's a great blessing to know that the church is built on Jesus Christ, on his word. And so I'm thankful that Mark will be giving us the word next week, and Michael one of the weeks, and Justin one of the weeks. And we'll even have uh, the pastor of Grace Simi out at the end of July. We prayed for Grace Simi this morning. They are a church that is a big part of what happened here at Grace Ranch, of how this revitalization took place. And it'll be uh, an exciting thing to be able to hear from Pastor Jordan again. Well, that's a little bit of an introduction, but we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 because we are going through the book of Mark. We do this expositionally. We work through a book of the Bible and try to unpack it, exegete it, and learn it because that's God's word to us. And this is how we know his will for our lives is now how we know who he is, who we are, how to live. So we're in Mark chapter 9. And if you've been with us the last several weeks, we've been doing a little bit of a series that would be uh, on holiness. And that was inspired by what Jesus is talking about in the last section in verses 42 to 50, where he's describing how to deal with this indwelling sin. Like how do we deal with a hand that wants to sin, eyes that want to sin, and feet that want to sin, and his solution is cut them off. And so we went into the whole doctrine of sanctification. How do we grow in likeness? And we spent time there because I felt like we really need to sit in that and and let it marinate and and let it soak in. And there's been a lot of, I think, good things that the Lord has done through his word over the last several weeks. Conversations have come up and areas that we're pursuing growth. And I just want to thank the Lord publicly for that. He uses his word. And and so if the Lord has been convicting you and and calling uh, to you to change from his word, then praise the Lord for that. He's at work in us. Uh, but I wanted to get to the end of this section because we're working through it. So it's a it's related topic. It's a related theme because it's all part of what Jesus has been teaching. And yet we're kind of done now with the, the, the holiness theme that we've been looking at. And I want you to look at one verse, verse 50 of chapter 9 of Mark, where Jesus kind of wraps up this section. And what this will kind of be is the... The, the icing on the cake, the little cherry on top, this might be the, the ribbon on the present. Uh, this will wrap up everything that we've talked about and kind of put it all together and you'll see how Jesus completes or concludes or culminates 
this whole section and how the previous sections we've been looking at actually all fit together under a single theme. All right, we're there in Mark chapter 9, right? All right? All right, verse 50, Jesus says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The New Testament is always making the case that the way that you win the world to Christ is not by becoming like the world. The way you win the world to the gospel is not by in imitating the world. Uh, we imitate the world with its fads and its trends, and we follow its cultural cues. When the church tries to blend in with the world in order to win the world, it inevitably does not attract any true converts to Christ. It can fill a building that way, but it does not give glory to God and it does not draw people to the gospel If people assume, if church leaders assume, if Christians assume that the power of our evangelistic witness is tied to our ability to know and imitate the culture, we will become a weak and ineffective church. You've maybe seen the types of churches that are trying to create a theatrical production that is just like anything you could see in a movie theater The music is like the stuff you'll hear on the radio. Uh, uh, The Christians are trying to imitate the cool fads, even the way people dress. They're trying to imitate the culture in a way to relate to the culture because if we do that, we'll draw people in. And it's as if, if you read the Bible, especially this New Testament God has given us about how people are one to the truth, it's never by just becoming indistinct. Just blending in with them. In other words, always that Jesus is presenting an idea. and uh, The gospel writers, the, the, those who are putting before us the reality of the gospel, they're always presenting us with this idea that the, the people of God ought to be distinct, different, set apart. And that's kind of this whole idea of holiness, the idea of sanctification. Sanctification literally means to be set apart from sin and from worldliness, from the ways of thinking like the world. The analogy that Jesus uses to talk about this is the analogy of salt. Salt. That Christianity, that the disciples themselves would be powerful insofar as it's distinct from the culture. It's not like the world. It's not worldly. The church is not a cheap imitation of the culture around it. It is a holy, set-apart community. Something like an embassy of heaven or an outpost of the kingdom. That there's something utterly unique about the church of the living God that you cannot find anywhere else that you go look. No other community, no other club, no other social relationship structure is quite like the church of God. Now what is it that makes us like salt? What is it that makes us distinct? What is it that makes us peculiar and different? Look at that verse again. Salt is good, verse 50. 
But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Now watch this, and this is the title of our message this morning. Be at peace with one another. Here's what Jesus is getting at. Part of the way that you are distinct, church, disciple of Jesus, part of the way that you are different, part of the way that you salt the earth, and we'll talk about what that means in a little bit, is that you live at peace with one another. That Christians enjoy a supernatural, inexplicable, loving unity, harmony, affection for one another that is not found in other places out there in the world. Be like salt. Be at peace with one another. In other words, the world is helped when the church is at peace. The community is helped when the church is not at war from within, infighting. The, the, the world is reached as Christians live at peace with one another. John 17, if you remember the, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying and uh, we get an insight into what God the Son prays for to God the Father. And one of these it's an amazing prayer. Go read John 17 sometime this week and, and pay particular attention to the latter part of that chapter where Jesus is praying for the unity of believers. In verse 23, Jesus says this in his prayer. He goes, he's praying that believers would be united. He says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Watch this. So that the world may know that you send me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He he takes a turn that we almost don't expect there. He's saying, I want the believers to be united, Lord. I want, Father, I want the believers to be one. Why? So that the world will know that I have been sent from you. That the world may know the legitimacy of the claims of Christ. That it is true what he said, what is true what he did, that the life of Christ is validated by the unity of believers. Isn't that an amazing thought? That the way you love one another, the way you treat the other believers, the peace that you live with amongst ourselves makes us salty to the world so that the watching world goes, wow, there's something true about that, Jesus. There's something true about that. I preached on First uh, John chapter 4, verse 11, a while back, and see me. I'll, I'll read you the verse. Um, the text goes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then he goes on to say, watch this. He says, No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So you can't see God. It's invisible. God's invisible. But what happens when the church loves something that is invisible, becomes something that is tangible. In other words, the love of the church amongst itself becomes this amazing apologetic for the reality of the love of God. You see the connection? That people can see the reality of God himself in the way that the church loves one another. I remember preaching that 
and uh, two different people, totally unrelated, at different points after that sermon came up to me and they said, but isn't it true that the, the world knows our love for them by the way we lovingly sacrifice for the world? I said, yeah, that, that is true. You know, when you, you lay down your life for your neighbor and it's, it's an expression of your love for them and don't they see uh, your love there? I said, yeah. But what this verse is saying is something that we don't think about as much. It is a reality that fellowship and peaceful churches and real community and lay down your life love for one another is pointing the world to the love of God. And so the best forms of evangelistic outreach all start with a church that is radically committed to one another and has developed a kind of fellowship that is rich and real and deep and genuine. And that fellowship is like a platform to hold the gospel high. So Jesus is saying here, be salty, Christian. Be distinct. And how I want you to be distinct is that you are at peace with one another. That in the church of Jesus Christ, division has no place. Infighting, no place. Tensions and dysfunction, we deal with those. No place. That we are working constantly, and it's always work, it's always proactive work, to be working for peace. Let's go back to the text. Let me just unpack it for you. Verse 50, salt is good. That's what Jesus starts out saying. You like salt in your eggs in the morning? Jesus affirms that. Salt is a good thing. You like loading that salt on your food? It's good for you. I don't know if he said it's good for you. It's a good thing. To have salt is good. In fact, in the first century, rabbis would actually, they had a saying, uh, life is impossible without salt. Remember, in the first century, there's no refrigeration. Um, that if you wanted to keep meat and have it last and be preserved for any period of time, you'd have to salt the meat. And the salt would function as a sort of preservative. It was a good thing to have salt. It was a necessary thing to live with salt. But then you go, what if salt has lost its saltiness? How can you make it salty again? And so if you're a chemist, you might need to correct me, but I read this somewhere, so take it up with that person who wrote that. It says that salt is a stable compound. What does that mean? What that means is that salt does not lose its saltiness through decomposition, through falling apart. The way that salt becomes less and less salty is as it gets mixed in with other minerals that are not salty. So it would happen in the Dead Sea, there would be salt deposits, and if you just had one block of salt, it would be pure salt, and of course it's as salty as you can get. And if that thing decomposed, it would still remain salty, you just have smaller pieces of salt. But if those smaller pieces of salt got mixed in with common sand or other minerals, and you were to try to taste that, it wouldn't taste as salty at all. Why? Because it's been mixed up. So part of the power of salt is that it is distinct from the influence of the world. He says then... uh, Have salt in yourselves. Uh, Be salty. Uh, One of the ways you're going to be salty is you're going to not let the worldly things in your life, you're not going to let the worldly influences, the worldly ways of thinking, the worldly ways of acting. You're going to have salt in yourself. You're going to function like a preservative in the community, a function like a flavoring agent in the community that you live, and you're going to do that and be at peace with one another. Now look at the whole section here, 
because you never want to read one verse and rip it out of context and see just what it is. You always want to take a look at the entire context. I believe that verse 50 is the culmination of verse 33 onward because it's all kind of happening in a single narrative. And what Jesus does at the very end in verse 50 is he wraps it all up with this single idea of peace. And if you're paying attention, then you realize that verses 33 to 37 describe one instance where peace was threatened. And 38 to 41 describe another instance where peace was threatened. 42 to 49, another instance where peace is threatened. And so this whole idea, he finishes it up that, hey, you got to be salty. And one of the ways you're distinct from the world is we're not like the world with all the fighting and drama. We are at peace with one another. Look at verses 33 to 37. That's the part where they're arguing about who's the greatest. That's a threat to peace, isn't it? You think you're the greatest one here? And Jesus has to deal with that one. 38 to 41, what is, what's happening there? John actually tries to stop another disciple who's not part of the 12. He, has to try to, he tries to shut down that guy's ministry, telling him that he can't cast out demons in his name. Jesus has to rebuke him. He's, Jesus is fighting for peace. They're about to tear down some peace and go to, you know, go to bat with this other guy who's casting out demons. Jesus isn't going to do that. He's fighting for peace. And then you get the verses, the, the, the section about causing people to stumble and your own sin causing you to stumble. Of course, that's going to cause a rift in a peaceful community if there's sin just running rampant in the lives of the disciples of Jesus. And so all of this is culminated by these are threats to our peace. If we don't deal with the threats to our peace, we will not be salty, we will not be distinct. Our community will be overrun with strife and tension. And what then would we have to offer the watching world? Anybody want to join a church that's full of infighting? Anyone want to you know, follow a religion where everyone's a hypocrite and everyone's fighting for their own rights and their own power? Who wants to be a part of that? You've got to be salty, you've got to be at peace with one another. How many of you know the reality that peace can be really difficult to come by and really fragile, sometimes difficult to hold on to once attained? I was reading an article this, this week of statistics of pastors in churches over the last 12 months during the COVID season, and Barna surveyed hundreds, thousands of pastors and interviewed them and asked them questions about different struggles that they faced. And he found a startling statistic. It was that one in four pastors over the last 12 months seriously contemplated resigning or retiring because of the conflict in their congregations. They, they didn't want to be a part of a church where people were in conflict. There was so much conflict the last 12 months, wasn't there? I think some people even in this room perhaps are still feeling it in family relationships and family dynamics. Peace isn't quite all there like you'd want. This loving, harmonious relationship that we all desire isn't quite there. There's all kinds of reasons that people will turn against each other. All kinds of ways that peace can be compromised. And So after this whole section... As he kind of wraps up this event, he, he calls all of his disciples to live distinct lives, distinctly Christian lives, by being at peace. What we're going to do over the 
next few minutes here is we're going to take a look at three peacebreakers and three peacemakers. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians 4. One of the things we found, and it's got me thinking about how we present truth, especially points of application to the congregation as we're teaching, we looked at the idea that you can't really break a habit, you've got to replace a habit. You can't just change without putting off, being renewed in your mind, and putting on that if you want to really change, yes, you have to stop doing things, but you also have to start doing new things, new biblical things, the fruit of the Spirit, you need to replace the old bad habits. And so as we look at the peace breakers, we're also going to look at the text and, and see what it says about these peacemakers. You know, what do we need to put on? This can be very practical for us. If you are embroiled in tension, in controversy, if there is a lack of harmony in your marriage, in your home, in your church family, even people perhaps here, God has called you to seek reconciliation and peace amongst your brothers and sisters. And I'm going to show you three dangers to peace, three peace breakers, but also to show what Jesus taught us to do to make peace. Let's start at our first one. We're going to look at verse 34. It's in this first section, verses 33 to 37. It says in verse 33, they, these are the disciples, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. There you go. This is our first peace breaker. You see what it is? It is selfishness. Selfish pride. Here they are, arguing about something. An argument is people coming to, a, coming to a conversation, coming to a conflict because they are in disagreement about something. And here it is. What, it is. what is it that they're arguing about? They are arguing about who is the greatest. And this is something that you think, how could this possibly be if you, the previous section was Jesus talking about him suffering and dying, laying down his life as an act of uh, sacrifice uh, verses 30 to 32, how is it that they could just hear that and then they go on to arguing about themselves being the greatest? And so here it is. The first peace breaker is selfishness. Your pride will lead you into conflict. If you are a proud person, conflict will follow you around. It will color your every conversation. It will color all your relationships. And it will create tension. Proud people bring it with them wherever they go, tension, that is. The Bible talks about five different selves that we need to watch out for. This is a good way to just help us think it. Um, I've heard it described in this way, and I figured I'd pass it on to you. Different ways we can act selfishly. Number one, we got self-will. Different ways we're selfish. Number one is self-will. This is where I say that I'm just going to do things my way. I'm not concerned about you. I'm not too concerned about what the Bible says. I'm not concerned about what others are saying. I'm not too concerned about how it affects you. I'm doing things my way. That's self-will. That's selfish. Another self is self-glory. My life is about my glory, my comforts, my achievements, my accomplishments, my recognition, my fame. I want to be noticed. I want to be loved. I want to be appreciated. I want you to recognize how great I am. Of course, that's what's going on with the disciples here. Self-glory. 
But you also got self-gratification. This is the person who's indulgent. This is, I live for my pleasure. I overeat. I indulge in secret lusts. I'm always angling for a more comfortable slot. I want my career to be comfortable, my life to be comfortable. I'm aiming for a life of ease. I'm resistant to any kind of self-denial or sacrifice. That is the life of self-gratification. There's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is this idea that I'm pretty good. There's good reasons for all the issues I have, but it's that person's fault. It's these situations that have made my life this way. It's my parents' fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's the fault of my circumstances. I am the way I am, not because I'm actually a person who sins. All my issues are the result of some outward force inflicting itself upon me. That's self-righteousness. And then you got self-sufficiency, which is I don't need you. I don't need help. I don't need counseling. I don't need outside input. I don't need a community to be a part of. I'm good on my own. And I think the disciples are doing a little bit of all of those. As they're arguing about who's the greatest, certainly their self-will, they're asserting themselves and arguing. Their self-glory, they want to be the greatest in the kingdom. Their self-gratification, why do they want to be the greatest? Because it'll be the most comfortable lifestyle and everyone will recognize them. They're self-righteous because they think they somehow deserve this. And they're self-sufficient because they're not looking to Christ to get it. In other words, selfishness in all its forms is manifesting itself in this conflict when they should be laying their lives down for each other. In fact, look at the peacemaker principle here. The peacebreaker principle is live for yourself, be selfish, be self-willed, seek your own glory, seek your own gratification, your own righteousness, your own sufficiency by your own strength, and Jesus will come to you and says this. Look at verse 35. He sat down, he called the 12, he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Imagine that in your marriage. Imagine that in your home. Imagine that in your church. Everyone who's there says, I am here to serve. I'm the lowest of all. I am the lowest of all. I will wash feet. I will lower myself down like my Savior, and I will be the servant of all. I'm not here to vie for my own selfish desires. I'm here to lay myself down for others. If you want to be a peace breaker... By all means, pursue self with all you've got, but it will never satisfy you. And if you want to be a peacemaker, listen to the words of Jesus. Take on the identity of a servant. Let me ask you. Are you serving anyone? Are you a servant sacrificing self for the good of others, even if they can never pay you back. This week as I was studying, I remembered an old article I'd read many years ago, and I brought it back up, and I was reminded of the power of it. There's an article telling the story of the 1st Platoon, B Company, of the 173rd Airborne Brigade. October 25th, 2007, this group of men were stationed somewhere in Afghanistan. They just accomplished their mission, and they're walking back to their outpost. They had to walk back 10 to 15 feet apart from each other just in case something happened to one of them. The rest could survive. 
And as they were heading back, they thought that they had finished their mission and all was done. Suddenly, they were ambushed by the enemy. There was gunfire all around them. And in a confusion and chaos, they were suddenly engulfed by grenades and machine gun fire. Friends were going down left and right. And one member of the group remembered a principle that he had learned in basic training when in ambush... When people are going down around you, you actually charge the enemy. His friends had gone down. There's little he could do. He knew he would probably lose his life, but he charged the enemy. And through amazing skill, uh, amazing effort, he was able to push back the ambush and rescue his friends. He risked his own life and saved them. If he tried to just Tuck tail and run, he probably could have got away, but he went back and he rescued and pushed back the ambush. When he returned to the States for his courage, he was awarded the highest medal of valor, the Medal of Honor. And when he was being interviewed, as they gave him this medal, they asked him, why would you risk your life, charge back almost to certain death, to get something that seemed like you could never get to to save your friends, to accomplish something that you should never have been able to accomplish. And without hesitation, the man said, I know they would have done it for me. There was this idea in his own mind that these friends that he had trained with, they had gone through battles with, they had learned with, that they would have done the same for him if he was in that situation. And so without hesitation, he ran back into enemy fire, risked his life, sacrificed all that in that risk, but was able to rescue them. Why? They would have done it for me. That's a platoon that has a culture of service and sacrifice, isn't it? And how much more should the church of Jesus Christ be that way? How much more should we be able to look around at the members here, the others who are following Jesus? And to say, I know they'd do it for me. And I'm going to do it for them. I know they'd pay the highest price if necessary for me. And I'm going to do that for them. I'm all in with them. I find it a very challenging and convicting question to ask myself. Would anyone think that of me? That I know Eric would lay his his life down for me. You see, church, we follow Jesus Christ. King of kings and Lord of lords. He left the riches of heaven to come to this fallen world behind enemy lines to live the life that we could never live, a righteous, perfect life in obedience to the Father and then to voluntarily lay down His life on that cross to make payment for the sins that we've committed so that the holy wrath of the Father would be poured out on Him instead of us. But then He conquered death. He rose from the dead. He's alive right now. And He invites all those who trust Him or who, who, who want to trust Him to come to Him, to have their sins forgiven, repenting and turning from all other trusts, all other loves to embrace Christ as Lord. And upon embracing of Christ, sins are forgiven, and His righteousness is ours, and He is our King and Lord. And how has He lived? What example has He given us? He has called us to follow His example. And if He laid His life down for the brothers, 
so should we. And the church should be characterized as a people who are servants, who are sacrificial. There should be a culture here of I will lay my life down. I am not seeking selfish gain. I'm here for you. So if you want to be a peace breaker, live for yourself. But Christians, we are called to be peacemakers. And one of the ways we do that is we serve. And when you're at the bottom of the totem pole, when you see yourself as the servant of all, there's very little to complain about. You see, the problem comes when we think we deserve this, and then we're treated like this. We got all kinds of problems with the gap there. You see that? But when you see yourself here, and you get treated here, you're just thankful. You're grateful. There would be less fighting. There would be less dysfunction. There would be more peace if we all just humbled ourselves to the very dust and saw ourselves as servants and said, I am here not for myself, but for the glory of God and for the well-being of my brothers and sisters. There's a second threat to unity, threat to peace that happens in verse 38, where John now, speaking on behalf of all the rest of the 12, John says to Jesus, Teacher! We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. I think they think they're doing something right here. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. So here's another guy, a disciple of Jesus. He is doing exorcisms in Jesus' name. And the disciples, because he's not part of their group of 12, the disciples, maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's because he was casting out demons and they couldn't do it in the previous section, Maybe it's just because they have this automatic suspicion against him. They try to shut him down, verse 39. But Jesus says, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon after to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us, verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here's, Here's peace breaker number two. Devalue... The service of others. Here's a man doing what he can for the cause of Christ. He's casting out demons. God has given him the ability in this scenario to cast out demons. And the disciples aren't having it. And the disciples are not seeing the value of it. And they're not recognizing it. They're not legitimizing it. It's invalid. It does not count. They're suspicious of why he's doing it and how he's doing it. And so they devalue his service. You see, the world out there, outside the church, is vying for market share. Think of all the corporations at work out there. Subway and Jersey Mike's are not teaming together for the common good of the good sandwich. I mean, they're, they're, they're not doing that. They're, they often promote their own products by putting the other ones down. Like ours is fresh, not theirs. You see what they do with their products? It's been in the freezer for three months. They're always trying to promote their products by putting down the other products. They're not working together. How different and distinct should Christians be in this way? You see, here's a Christian that the disciples don't know. The disciples have not met, but he's doing a good work in the name of Christ. And Jesus says, you shouldn't stop him. Christians should be different. In fact, look at verse 42 which I think belongs in the previous section, the the section we just read, verse 42, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him 
If a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You want to cause one of these ones to stumble? One of these that are trying to serve me, they're trying to use their gifts and abilities to serve me, and you want to shut them down? You know what? Let me warn you. You, you shut them down and you cause them to stumble. You cause them to fall away from the, what I've called them to do and be. You are guilty of a great sin in doing that. There, there's the, the, this possibility that we as Christians are suspicious of every other Christian we don't know. Even others in the church, you know, they might be doing everything right, but since we don't know them, we're just looking at them sideways. It's not so sure. Can we trust them? We devalue their service. We cause them to stumble. We refuse to encourage we refuse to value what God has given them to do, probably because we are so puffed up with our own pride, we think our work is the most valuable. Our service is what matters, and no one else quite gets it like we do. We can cause brothers and sisters to stumble in this way. A few weeks ago, we talked about how we can be guilty of causing other believers to stumble. We talked about four things, just by way of reminder. Uh, you can cause someone to stumble by direct temptation. You know, like the serpent, actually inviting them into sin. Secondly, you can cause someone to stumble by approving of their sinful behavior. You know, you give them the thumbs up as they go do something evil. Number three, you can cause someone to stumble by promoting false ideas. Things that are not true, you're pro- pro- passing them on as if they're true. And then number four, this is the more passive, insidious way. We can cause brothers and sisters to stumble by withholding care that God intends for us to give. It's like God calls us to bear burdens, to bear one another's burdens. That's what his word calls us to do. And imagine you just don't care to know anyone enough to know what their burdens are and you don't bear their burdens at all. Or God calls us in his word to speak the truth in love and to build one another up. And imagine that I have no relationship with anyone. I'm not speaking to build them up. In other words, I'm not making good of the obligations that God has given me for my brothers and sisters. And I can be the cause of their stumbling. You see, peace breaking is devaluing the service of others, devaluing the Christian discipleship of others, having no commitment to their well-being, to their growth. We don't encourage them. We don't support them. We have nothing to do with them. We kind of let them go, do their Christian thing, and we got our own Christian thing. No commitment, no relationship, no depth of love, no depth of care. That is devaluing the Christian service of others. Well, what's the peacemaker? Well, it's the opposite of that. What do you put on? You value the service of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Ask yourself, is my impulse to assume the worst motives of the people I don't know? Like, is that my impulse? Like, my first gut reaction is to assume the worst. Look at, look at the verse here. Verse 41 Jesus gives the corrective right there in the passage, verse 41. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What does he mean by that? Jesus is saying, if there's someone who who gives you a cup of water, that's a very small thing. 
it's not some big, grandiose, you know, revival preaching thing. It's, it's just you hand someone a cup of cold water because he belongs to Christ. So here's another Christian. I, I love Jesus, and I want to exalt Jesus, and I love his followers, and I want to support them. And so even if I just do something very small, I just give them a glass of water. What does it say? It says that they will by no means lose their reward. You see that? In other words, this is what that means. That God sees the most insignificant act of service, and he values it, and he will reward it. That if you serve in utter obscurity because you love the Lord and you love the church and you love his people, God is seeing that, and he values that, and he will reward that. And what does that mean about us, church? How should we act? What does it mean? It means we too should value the service of other Christians, no matter how small. We should value it like God does. Is it more godly of you to see a good work and to say nothing? I want to keep them humble. Don't want to encourage them too much. Might go to their head. Or is it more godly to see the grace of God at work in other lives and to affirm that, to encourage that, as if it's a little ember, you can fan it into a flame. You realize you have the ability to do that and that God has called us as a church to work together in that. We too should value the acts of service of other Christians just as God does. God sees even someone handing a cup of cold water in the name of Christ and so should we value even the smallest acts of service? In 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the letter to the Corinthians is interesting. The Corinthian church was, for lack of a better way of saying it, messed up. A lot of, lot of issues with the, the Corinthian church. And you might expect Paul, who's writing the letter to the Corinthians, to just start out by just lambasting them. You know, here's all the issues you got, and... And here's how you need to change. Man, you're, you're disunified, and there's factions, and you're abusing the spiritual gifts, and, and all those things are there. But you know what? He doesn't start with any of those things. Go back and read the beginning of 1 Corinthians and, and take note of how Paul addresses this dysfunctional church. I'll read it to you. He starts to, by saying to them, I give thanks to God always for you. What? This church caused Paul all kinds of problems. But he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. He says that to the Corinthians. In other words, he's got all kinds of issues to deal with, and he will deal with them in the letter, but he starts... By acknowledging the grace of God in their life. You see, you might have a lot of things to talk about with other people. Issues that might have. Tensions to resolve. Conflicts to work on. I think it's very instructive to work for peace like Jesus does in recognizing even the insignificant progress and service that Christians make. And to follow the example of Paul. Knowing that in all true believers, you can point to evidences of grace in their life. And you can encourage them that way. And you can thank God for the work that's going on in their life and for the progress they're making. Just personally, the people who changed my life 
and helped me grow were the ones that, though there were a million things they could have nitpicked about the problems and the immaturities I had, they were ones that celebrated the grace of God in my life, encouraged me, prayed for me, didn't give up on me. Put off suspicion of other believers. Put off devaluing the service of other believers. And put on the mindset of what these brothers and sisters are doing in the name of Christ is valuable. It's an evidence of God's grace, and I affirm and I value that. Here's our last point, and it'll be the quickest because literally the last two months have been about this. The peace breaker, the third one, is harboring sin. And the peacemaker is going to war against your own sin. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Let's pause there. All secret sin has social consequences. It makes us no longer salty, no longer distinct. And all harbored secret sin will have effects on the peacefulness and the harmony of the people of God. This is part of the reason why he concludes this whole section with be salty, have salt in yourself, and be at peace. And you cannot be distinct from the world if you act like the world. You cannot be distinct from the world if you're worldly. I think it was Paul David Tripp who said, all sin is antisocial. In other words, all of your sin, no matter how private you think it is, will have social consequences on the people around you. Your spouse, your family, and your church will all suffer, even if they don't know the specific nature of your harbored sin. And that's why, as a part of us being distinct, Jesus calls us to wage war against sin. So much of the conflict in our marriages, in our families, and in our churches are the result of harbored sin. We focus on that person's sin and refuse to make war on our own sin. If we do these things, these three things, if we commit to put off these peace-breaking attitudes and actions and put on these peace-making attitudes and actions, the church will be salty and distinct. It'll be an amazing, powerful, apologetic for the gospel. It'll be like the early church. Elton Trueblood wrote a book called The Incendiary Fellowship. Incendiary means flammable or combustible. And he writes, It was the incendiary character of the early church fellowship which was amazing to the contemporary Romans. And it was amazing precisely because... There was nothing in their experience that was remotely similar to it. In other words, the Romans hadn't experienced anything like the Christian church. Religion, they had in vast quantities, but it was nothing like this. So much of the uniqueness of Christianity 
in its original emergence consisted of the fact that simple people could be amazingly powerful when they were members of one another. As everyone knows, it is almost impossible to create a fire with one log, even if it is a sound one, while several poor logs may make an excellent fire if they stay together as they burn. The miracle of the early church was that of poor sticks making a grand fire. We're a bunch of poor sticks here, aren't we? And yet, by the grace of God, united together by the Spirit, we come together, we unite together, we can make a great fire, a great impact on the community God has put us in. We can be salt here. And hopefully things like what happened in Francis Schaeffer's Labrie Fellowship will happen here. There was a man who came regularly to help with the facilities at the Labrie Fellowship, Francis Schaeffer's ministry. And he said, upon visiting several times, he was not a believer at the time, he said, every time I've been here, I feel like a human being. And then he later gave his life to Christ. There's something so humane about living as Christ called us to, as servants, laying down our lives for others, fighting our sin together, loving and encouraging and upholding and valuing one another, that the world does not have an imitation of. Let's live this way together by the grace of God. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to actually have some new members welcomed into the fellowship, and we'll cap it off with a baptism. So a great way to end the morning. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your grace. Praise you for the church that you've given to us. Praise you for the word that you've reminded us of this morning, that we ought to be servants, we ought to value one another, and we ought to fight our own sin. And Father, as we commit to these things, I pray that you would make the gospel prevalent and powerful, that those who don't know it would come here and feel humane then understand that the reason for the fellowship we enjoy is Christ himself. They would give their lives to Christ. Help us to live in accordance with these truths for your glory. In Jesus' name.